welcome to Retrofitted. I'm Rebecca Godlove. Hi again. Thanks for coming back as I continue to wade through the muddying waters of Christian deconstruction. If you're a first-time listener, scoot back a few episodes to the first one in season four because this is not a good season to start in the middle. We've discussed what deconstruction is and what it can be. We've talked about how a lot of similar religious and philosophical movements deny the existence for absolute truth and why Christianity actually requires it as a foundational principle of all of its edicts, laws, and expectations. I've also discussed why, regardless of a religion, I do believe in absolute truth. This week will be kind of the start of a Reader's Digest version of the Bible to lay the groundwork for next time when we will start to discuss early church leaders and history. It's extremely important to me to place the Bible and all of its books, which as a reminder were not all written during the same time period, into their proper historical context. So I am going to do that to the best of my ability. I also want to point out that I don't exclusively use Christian or creationist works in my research. Uh, first, it's, it's just too easy to simply cut and paste things that agree with my own personal views and leave everything else on the cutting room floor. Does that sound familiar? Second, I find that many secular and Christian sources actually agree on a lot of things, uh, if not the specifics, and then often at least in the spirit of things. Third, I strongly feel that to grow as a person, and yes, even to grow within one's own religion, it is crucial to have the patience, compassion, and respect to learn about cultures and individuals with whom you disagree. To be constantly in a cocoon of like-minded people with no expression of individual or dissenting opinion, that's called a cult, sugar, and they don't usually end very well. So I usually pull from various sources, not exclusively Christian ones. The Bible, as it's primarily known today, is a collection of 66 separate books, including letters, poetry, proverbs, parables, and laws that span thousands of years of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean history. Some sects include additional books such as Maccabees, the Book of Judith, and others. I am not Catholic. Uh, I do consider these apocryphal books, and I, I don't necessarily include them as inspired text. For the Christian, the entire Bible is one long and epic story about man's creation, his fall, his struggles, and his redemption. Every book points to the idea of a savior atoning for mankind, even if it's not explicitly naming Jesus. Too often we pull out specific verses and focus on the words alone, ignoring important questions like, is this verse addressed to one person or a group? In what situation, cultural or otherwise, is this being shared? Is this an instance that is being condoned by the writer or reported by him? Why is this verse or story here? Does it serve a purpose beyond its inclusion in this story alone? One notable example is the go-to verse of every misogynistic church leader, air bunnies on that one, on the planet. It is a teensy, teensy little snippet from the book of Ephesians, which was a letter written by Paul to the church leaders in the city of Ephesus in Greece. Perhaps you've heard it before. It's chapter five, verses 23 and 24. Quote, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything, end quote. This is the verse that is used to justify everything from marital rape to child abuse to female genital mutilation and beyond. With these verses exactly as they are here, they do present a pretty bleak view of marriage. Women are to be obedient to men. That's the translation we are fed by often old white preachers, and we are never to question or defy them. However, these verses do not exist in a vacuum. They have context, a, a little hug that wraps them up and makes far more sense of them. In fact, now get this, Paul precedes this verse with a very clear list of how Christian men and women should conduct themselves. This includes admonitions to refrain from telling dirty jokes and drinking alcohol excessively, to not participate in evil behavior or cover up evil behavior. Essentially, he tells people not to be creeps to each other. Instead, he encourages cooperation among believers, suggesting they pray and sing together. All of that before he comes to this. This is verse 21. This is that little hug. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that verse is not talking about men or women. It's talking about everyone. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband, end quote. Yeah, I am on a huge tangent here, but I'm going to let this one play out because this might be the most important thing I have ever given my voice to. Please note Submission is tied directly to godliness. Paul, again, begins this section of scripture with and further. Besides, the original text didn't have the punctuation and grammar that we see in, in it today. Paul bringing up the subject of submission was actually a natural segue after he talked about how to be a good Christian. He listed for his readers all the ways a person, man or woman, could honor God. He specifically listed things not to do. Then he talks about submission. Submission is only appropriate when those suggestions of godliness are followed. 
He talks about submission with the understanding that if everyone's on the same page, submission isn't an issue at all. If you're all looking out for each other's interests, you're all encouraging each other and not hiding secrets, evil sins, or anything else in your closet, this is how you should be relating to each other, by submitting one to another. When he continues that wives should submit to their husbands, he specifically includes the metaphor that if the wife is the church, the husband represents Christ. If you can get past the word submit, which I have discussed on several occasions on this podcast, the meaning in this verse is crystal clear. Christ loved the church by literally giving up his own will and life for her. That means a good godly husband who wants to marry is expected to do the same for his bride, putting aside his own desires so that she can benefit. The husband is literally told to treat his wife the way he would treat his own body. The understanding here is that most normal healthy people, regardless of religion, will generally try to take care of their own bodies and minds. So in effect, Paul is saying, dudes, don't do anything to your wifeies that you wouldn't do to yourself. He even makes it plain that all believers are part of this body that is to be cared for, not just wives. Moving on to the ladies part. The church is to love and revere Christ using its gifts and talents to serve him. So a wife is expected to use her God-given gifts, smarts, cleverness, any other talents she has to help and encourage her husband and to show others the truth of who he is. But all of this is off the table entirely if the rules set forth by Paul, which are essentially a repetition of the Ten Commandments revisited, are ignored. He ties submission in marriage to submission to God first and foremost. A man who is abusive is not in submission to Christ. A woman sleeping with someone else's husband is not in submission to Christ. All of that to say, it is so easy to pluck a tiny verse from a vast sea to present it to a congregation as a perfect pearl of wisdom on its own. It's not, though. Which is, again, why I am so passionate about looking at the Bible as a whole document and record rather than picking parts I like. To be honest, there are parts I don't like. Just saying. I would say we got off track, but actually there, there isn't actually a track plotted out here. So we're kind of like babes in the wood on this go around. All that to say, again, nothing in the Bible exists on its own. Nothing is in there without reason. Some reasons are to educate and enlighten us. Some are to warn us. Many are to provide examples of how not to behave. Actually, like a huge chunk of the Bible is how not to behave. Just because a story is in there doesn't mean that the actions taken by the people involved are condoned by God. Another super quick example is the story of Bathsheba and David. I read an incredible string of tweets uh, just the other morning by a woman named Carmen Joy Imes. I believe that's how it's pronounced. I-M-E-S. She makes it very clear using the actual scripture itself that David is 100% at fault and to be blamed for the whole debacle with Bathsheba. She suffers for his sin and loses her child, but the blame is never actually placed on her, despite how many armchair reverends might like to swing it. The rape of Bathsheba is in the Bible. David committing adultery and rape, then murder and false witness to cover it up, that's all in there too. And also David being a really horrible dad is in there too. It's not David's best side, no, but it's one of them. And multifaceted human behavior is something that God created, not us. 
the existence of slavery and polygamy is in the Bible too, but if you look closely at literary and historical context, neither are exactly what they seem on the surface. That's a topic for another day though. We're just going to camp on the absolute truth in the Bible because the thing is either it's absolutely true or none of it is true. We don't get to pick the parts we like and pull them out to guide us and allow them to exist on a plane devoid of context because it's one document tied together by time, prophecy, and truth that's either real or not real. That's up to you to decide. You know how I feel about it. But the question is, how was the Bible seen by the earliest Christians? What role did it play in the formation of the early church? Let's dip our toes in, shall we? The earliest known compilation of the 66 books in the Bible is from the 300s. So what were Christians doing in the time between the ascension of Jesus and then? Well, for one thing, some of them were rebelling against their Roman government, which was something that many Jews had expected their Messiah to do, and which was something that Jesus did not do, at least not the way they wanted. So various individuals claimed to be the returning Messiah, rousing up even more anti-Roman sentiment, and ultimately got themselves killed and their temple destroyed in the process. In the meantime, Gentiles, or non-Jews, were getting pretty invested in this Christianity thing more so than the Jews who were the first to hear the message. Fairly early on, the first Christians were met with some tough questions. Did Gentiles have to first convert to Judaism before they converted to Christianity? This might seem like an unnecessarily complex question, but it made sense for the time. The Jewish people had been called by God to live separately from the pagan cultures surrounding them, and even from other monotheistic cultures. The Jewish lifestyle included many things that made them not only behave differently, but also look different from their neighbors. One of these things was mandated circumcision for all male babies one week after birth. Other things included the rejection of certain types of foods that had long been considered under Mosaic law forbidden or unclean. Were new believers to be subject to these requirements and restrictions as well? Did they have to learn Jewish law and practices before they could be accepted into this new fold as Christians? Ultimately, was converting to and practicing Judaism a prerequisite for accepting Christianity? The First Apostolic Council, which convened sometime around 18 years or so following the resurrection of Christ, decided that the answer was a hard no, although they did ask new Gentile converts to adhere to the Ten Commandments, which are the basis of both Judaism and Christianity anyway, and follow a handful of Jewish dietary laws. Speaking of diets, one of the first things the early church did was create a food pantry for needy widows. Yeah, in Acts 6, there was a bit of a kerfuffle when the Greek or Gentile-turned-Christian widows were concerned that they were being overlooked in favor of the Jewish-turned-Christian widows. In order to keep things fair, the early church as a whole, not just the leaders, agreed to choose seven men or deacons to oversee the pantry to ensure that all the widows were being compensated appropriately. And yeah, even back then, uh, widows needed to prove that they were truly in need. That is to say, they weren't able to remarry uh, or they had no family to take them in. These first soup kitchen workers, per se, uh, were per Act 6, verses 3 and 4, to be full of the spirit, wise and responsible. This was in no way a throwaway position. Their conscientious tending to this vital community need freed up the leadership to work with other areas. All believers' tasks are equally important, but working with different audiences, having different goals, and requiring different skill sets. Anyway, the majority of the earliest Christians were Gentile believers. Paul and the other early missionaries fascinated them with the concept of Christ's atonement for mankind's sin and the idea that religion wasn't 
hereditary. Then, as now, many cultures believe that people are born into their faith the same way a person is born into the citizenship of a nation. But Christianity wasn't exclusively tied to a nation or a people group or a language or a culture, so it freely spread throughout the Mediterranean region and beyond. Next time, oh heck, I don't know where we'll go. I don't have a plan. Let's just figure this out together, okay? Sources for this episode include wikipedia.org and worldhistory.org. Until next time, you can reach me at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com or download and listen to all three seasons of Retrofitted on anchor.fm, Audible, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. Now, this podcast was never meant to be one-sided, so you are invited to share your thoughts about this or any episode on my Facebook or Instagram pages. Just search at Retrofitted Podcast. I will be back with another episode in about two weeks. Until then, be wise and be well. song is Late Night by Ryan Anderson.